Episode 2, The Billionaire. Act 1, The Fruits of Capitalism Grow Poisonous. The ideology of prohibitionism is universal, but its American variant has proven much more effective than most. From the Puritans of the Mayflower and Jamestown, the temperance movement, the great tent revivals. In God, we'll set people free. It'll change your life. It'll even raise the dead. Blessed be his precious name. Great Awakening, a constitutional amendment on prohibition, abstinence-only sex education, the modern clean living and GMO-free lifestyle. hates democracy. Monsanto hates democracy because democracy does not work for Monsanto. There's something unique in the American fabric that delivers assembly line after assembly line of prohibitionist fantasy imposed on the body politic. In decades and centuries past, these movements were inexorably tied to religious zeal. Your path to redemption and acceptance by God relied on living a pure and clean life, free from the devil's temptations. This impacted the souls and lives of men, women, and relationships in the private sphere beyond any state power. The anonymous poem written by a collective in the Women's Christian Temperance Union in the late 1800s sets the stage for the ideology of prohibitionism wedded to Christian theology. The demon of rum is about in the land. His victims are falling on every hand. The wise and the simple, the brave and the fair, no station too high for his vengeance to spare. O women, the sorrow and pain is with you, and so be the joy and the victory, too. With this for your motto and succor divine, the lips that touch liquor shall never touch mine. But another religion in America also took hold at this time, dealing not with souls or redemption, but the machinery of free exchange, wealth accumulation, and philanthropy for the poor and the less well-off. In his seminal essay, The Gospel of Wealth, billionaire steel magnate Andrew Carnegie revealed his lifetime philosophy. It was grit, determination, and hard work that made a man wealthy, the fruits of capitalism. But it was that success, he claimed, that made it necessary to be a steward for those less fortunate, to give away one's hard-earned wealth to help shape society for the greater good. He wrote, This, then, is held to be the duty of the man of wealth, to set an example of modest, unostentatious living, shunning display or extravagance, to provide moderately for the legitimate wants of those dependent upon him, the man of wealth thus becoming the mere trustee and agent for his poor brethren, bringing to their service his superior wisdom, experience, and ability to administer, doing for them better than they would or could do for themselves. It was Carnegie, along with oil titan John D. Rockefeller and automaker Henry Ford, who not only provided the seed funds for thousands of projects of philanthropy in their lifetimes and beyond, but also used that giving in accordance with their own desired societal goals. One of these projects was alcohol prohibition. 
Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Ford were heavy funders of the famed Anti-Saloon League, the prohibitionist anti-alcohol group that single-handedly delivered prohibition as a constitutional amendment in the United States. As told in Ken Burns' documentary, Prohibition, it was the effective campaigning and propaganda of the Anti-Saloon League, buoyed by billionaire dollars, that made this once-fringe moral movement a social force that dominated political life. In 1893, in Oberlin, Ohio, a new organization had been established to fight the evils of alcohol, the Anti-Saloon League. It would turn out to be the most effective political pressure group in American history. The founder of the League was the Reverend Howard Hyde Russell. Unlike Francis Willard and the WCTU, Russell was determined that his organization would focus on a single goal, to get rid of alcohol, period. Town by town, county by county, state by state, they would force America to go dry. When rich entrepreneurs pivoted from providing value to millions of consumers on assembly lines, factories, and railroads, to social projects, it was here that prohibitionism received root and second life. Religious and political groups mobilized. Opposing voices were quashed. The dries versus the wets. State-level bans were passed piece by piece until prohibition became federally enforced with the 18th Amendment in 1919. As we came to learn, the consequences unraveled almost immediately. The crime, the violence, the waste of hundreds of millions of dollars, and a weaponization of government into private lives that we had never before witnessed. The fruits of capitalism bore poisonous fruit. That, however, was yesterday's prohibitionism and yesterday's class of billionaires. The gospel of wealth in modern times is no longer the fashionable cause it once was. Instead, it has a new name and a new face, public health. If government's purpose isn't to improve the health and longevity of its citizens, I don't know what its purpose is. Perpetuated by a New York City billionaire with a name as iconic as his wealth. Single biggest health problem in America and will kill more people than smoking in a few years. Act 2. The Bloomberg Terminal Cause Michael Bloomberg is a man who wears many coats. Born into a middle-class family in Boston and later cutting his teeth on Wall Street, Bloomberg launched his innovative finance software for traders in 1982. His company's main product, the Bloomberg Terminal, has become an integral part of the stock traders' toolkit even more so throughout the booms and the busts of the stock market of the 1980s and 1990s. And it expanded the Bloomberg empire to become a vast global company comprising financial information, software, media, and investing. Everything you need to get set for the start of U.S. trading. This is Bloomberg, the open... In 2020, Bloomberg's company earned more than $12.2 billion dollars making it consistently into the list of the top 40 private companies by wealth in the United States. 
This stellar success has made Michael Bloomberg the seventh wealthiest man on the planet, massing him an immense fortune and profile that he's lent to various causes, not least of which his own, whether it be his failed presidential run in 2020 or his successful career as New York City mayor for three terms. Michael Bloomberg has been there, seeing it all, and pledged to give it all away to charities that he controls and runs around the world. Beginning in 2010, Bloomberg signed the Giving Pledge, promising to give away most of his estimated $94.5 billion in his lifetime. The direction of these donations and the expansive network of NGOs, campaigns, and causes have aligned with Bloomberg's preeminent political views. But you attract enormous attention for what you're trying to do in health. There was smoking. There was trans fat. Now there is sugar and sugary drinks. What is this? What is it that drives Charlie, you to try to impose? If government's purpose isn't to improve the health and longevity of its citizens, I don't know what its purpose is. And we're not here to tell anybody what to do, but we certainly have an obligation to tell them what's in the best science and best medicine says is in their interest. So. If you want to smoke, Aside from his successful business efforts, Michael Bloomberg was also inspired to dabble in politics directly as a candidate. On Election Day 2001, Bloomberg won the mayoralty of America's most populous city as a Republican, succeeding New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani just a few weeks after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. He led the city for an unprecedented three terms— and forge an impact on many social, regulatory, and tax policies that were dear to Bloomberg's vision, whether that be on climate change, gun control, or public health. With regards to consumer products during Bloomberg's tenure, New York City banned trans fat, outlawed smoking in all establishments, forced lower salt counts in restaurant foods, banned extra-large drink sodas like the famed Big Gulp, and sought to limit the visibility of cigarette packs at points of sale. These actions earned him the moniker of Nanny State Mike. Some people say, well, taxes are regressive, but in this case, yes, they are. That's the good thing about them, because the problem is in people that don't have a lot of money. But during his time in office and outside of it, he's shown himself as a crusader, prepared to use the force of government to raise prices and taxes for products that he deems unhealthy and even dangerous, if only to save the people from themselves. We have adopted many groundbreaking and controversial public health policies from banning smoking in the workplace to requiring chain restaurants to post calorie counts to banning trans fats. None has been more central to Michael Bloomberg than the war on tobacco and their e-cigarette derivatives. Such displays suggest that smoking is a normal activity and they invite young people to experiment with tobacco. Already in 2016, Bloomberg was committing $220 million a year to curb tobacco use globally, launching the Bloomberg Initiative to reduce tobacco use and showering groups affiliated with the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, the World Health Organization's Tobacco Treaty Organization, with yet more funds to carry out a tobacco control agenda. These groups included the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, the National Foundation for the Center's Disease Control and Prevention, the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, the World Health Organization itself, and the World Lung Foundation and the International Union Against Tuberculosis and Lung Disease. 
But while his efforts to curb tobacco use in developing countries is laudable, much of the focus in recent years has been on the growing use of vaping devices in developed ones. This is the thing about you, Mr. Mayor. I'm thinking you like people healthy. You've taken on climate change, soft drinks, uh, gun control, and now teen vaping. Why? Because all of a sudden, all the progress we made in reducing smoking, particularly among kids, is at jeopardy if they start uh, vaping. Vaping is as bad, if not worse, than smoking. In one pod of uh, that you use in in your Juul, or there's some others too, but it's mainly Juul. There's a more t uh, nicotine than in a whole pack of cigarettes. And kids just don't realize that. They like the flavored stuff, so that's what they're doing, entertaining. But they, they're not using it to stop smoking. There's no evidence that uh, vaping helps you stop smoking. None yeah. whatsoever. If yeah. there was, the company would put it out, and they haven't. How much money are you going to spend to try to stop that? Uh, we announced $160 million over three years. But, you know, you could use more if you can find ways to do it. You just have to have a game plan and budget, and that's what our budget is for. Despite the false science used by Michael Bloomberg, there are many who are concerned that many of his efforts, including the millions of dollars he's spending globally, are going to harm adult consumers who are using many of these products to switch away from cigarettes. To learn more, I spoke with investigative journalist Mark Gunther, who has written profiles about Michael Bloomberg and where his money has gone around the world. I'm sorry to say that I think the impact has been really significant in a couple of ways. First of all, uh, they did spend a lot of money. I think the number uh, is $160 million in 2019. I believe that grant has been renewed, but they haven't disclosed how much. And that money has enabled Bloomberg and his allies, people at places like Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and PAVE, the Parents Against Vaping Group, to just spread enormous amounts of misinformation about the dangers of vaping, about the so-called epidemic of kid vaping, about this disease, which has wrongly been named E-Valley, but has nothing to do with the kinds of nicotine vapes you can buy in a vape shop. Um, all that misinformation has led people to believe that vaping is much more dangerous than it actually is. Uh, and the upshot of that is that People who might otherwise decide to switch from cigarette smoking, combustible cigarettes, to vaping, which is a much safer way to take in nicotine, have been discouraged from doing so. And I suppose the ultimate impact, and this is the tragic part, is those people, as well as people living in states that have enacted tight restrictions on vaping, including flavor bans, are continuing to smoke and uh, therefore putting their own lives and, and you know, the, the, their families at some risk in ways that are completely unnecessary. So as Gunther has uncovered in all of his reports on Bloomberg's activities and funding around the world, the focus on children, when there are millions of adult consumers of some of these vaping products, has emanated them, much in a way that aligns with the neo-prohibitionist fantasy that we've seen in all the eras of prohibition before? Uh, I think in general, people who want to oppose any kind of activity, um, you know, violent TV, uh, alcohol, vaping in this case, focus on children, quote unquote, kids sometimes, the name of uh, the leading group opposing smoking and vaping in U.S. is campaign for tobacco-free kids. 
Here's that group's president, Matthew Myers, giving the spiel on TV. In the last three years, we've seen a greater growth of the number of kids who are addicted to nicotine than we've had in any time in the last 20 years. So what we're finding is great promises that these products may be helpful to smokers to quit. No evidence that that's true. Enormous evidence that as these products have been manufactured, marketed, and sales, they've created an epidemic of youth use among kids. And we have to remember, for kids, delivering massive doses of nicotine is itself harmful. An organization that once fought for tobacco control and to reduce tobacco use has pivoted to nicotine and to nicotine abstention and to fighting any kind of harm reduction device that would deliver nicotine to adult consumers. Here's Mark Gunther with more. And by focusing on kids, they're able essentially to ignore the needs, in this case, of adult cigarette smokers. I think it's also a class issue. Um, most people who are well-educated, relatively affluent, are not much in contact with smokers. The smokers have been forgotten. They tend to come from marginalized groups, stressed out people. Native Americans are heavy smokers. LGBTQ folk are heavy smokers. People especially with um, emotional and mental issues use cigarettes to calm themselves down or lift themselves up. Those groups are pretty invisible, and they have been cast aside um, because the middle class, upper class kids who have taken up vaping have then caused the panic among their parents, among politicians, among Bloomberg and his ilk, and their needs have been placed ahead of those of the adult smokers. So what is the pivotal role of billionaire Michael Bloomberg and his charities in stopping the harm-reducing nicotine delivery systems that are popping up across our cities and countries? For Gunther, it's a hard question to answer because of Bloomberg Philanthropy's role in investments in climate change and the environment. But somehow, they miss the mark when it comes to harm reduction and nicotine alternatives. Well, I think Bloomberg's philanthropy, broadly speaking, has been pretty good compared to many of the other living billionaire donors who I've written about over the years. You know, he has helped spread the field of public health, which is important. He's done great work around climate, which I think is important. But I think this anti-vaping campaign is a real stain on his rep reputation because arguably it's costing people's lives. I mean, some of the more interesting research shows that in states like Massachusetts that have banned vaping um, or banned flavored vaping, I should say, you find that smoking increases. So the, the horrible paradoxical upshot of Bloomberg's crusade against vaping is that he is either pushing some people to go back to smoking or discouraging other people from stopping smoking. And there's really no way to prettify that other than to say it's costing people's lives. And with that, we know the impact of Michael Bloomberg's campaign against e-cigarettes and vaping products in the United States, but it might be even more extensive globally, particularly in his partnership with the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, a World Health Organization global treaty organization whose goal is to eradicate tobacco, but has somehow pivoted 
to now try to eliminate nicotine alternatives like vaping. I think it may be even more influential around the world than it is in the United States because of the wrongheaded position of the um, tobacco control organization. But, you know, they're applauding the country of India, for example, a couple of years ago, which tried to totally ban vapes. And again, that's a country with hundreds of millions of smokers. Bloomberg has implanted anti-vaping people or funded anti-vaping organizations in places like the Philippines. Uh, and in these developing countries, they are very effective from all I've been able to learn. And while the global billions have continued to pour to stop nicotine alternatives from being legalized or available to the millions of smokers around the world, one pivotal fact remains true. These tobacco control organizations, now fixated on banning vapes, have left cigarettes untouched. How does it make sense in places like Massachusetts, uh, New York, California, that we have told people you can't buy flavored vapes, but you can buy any kind of cigarette you want in a store, or for that matter, as much flavored alcohol as you should want. And I'm not saying we should ban cigarettes or ban alcohol, to the contrary, but vapes are just the most, in a sense, useful of all those things because they are an aid to quitting smoking. This last point by Gunther is an important one. Markets have delivered a technological way to get people to stop smoking, and it has done so. It's been so successful that it's now a model and used in various public health systems in the United Kingdom, New Zealand, and Canada, but somehow meets the derision of billionaire funders like Michael Bloomberg, who propagate funding after funding round to organizations and countries that adhere to a model where they outlaw this nicotine vaping device. I'd say one more thing about Bloomberg, which is although he has funded public health, broadly speaking, in a lot of areas, including at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins, his people at Bloomberg Philanthropies have very stubbornly refused to meet with any of the leading figures in the tobacco control or harm control or harm reduction movement. Um, presidents of the Society for Tobacco and Nicotine Research put out a thought piece a couple of years ago, essentially looking for a more balanced approach to vaping taking steps to keep vapes out of the hands of children, but make them easier to obtain, particularly for adult smokers. They brought a lot of evidence to bear. They repeatedly asked for a meeting with Bloomberg and his people, and he has refused to consider them or consider their evidence. In this wave of neo-prohibitionism, billionaire Michael Bloomberg is not an extra or an auxiliary character. He's the main player. With the billions of dollars spent globally to ensure that tobacco control fuses with the prohibition on nicotine alternative devices, Michael Bloomberg is adding fuel to the fire of misinformation and putting lives in jeopardy that otherwise would be saved by the miraculous technology of nicotine alternatives. Act 3. Where it all ends. As we've shown, the billions of dollars that have been amassed by Michael Bloomberg legitimately through a free market have been used as a poisonous tree that have spawned all types of organizations dedicating to massive prohibition, whether it be on salts, trans fats, 
or even nicotine vaping devices. Where we see that most presently is with the ongoing debates around soda taxes in the United States and around the world. Beginning in 2013, Michael Bloomberg began personally giving his money to pass referenda or laws that would implement soda taxes, not just in cities or in counties, but in various countries as well. In 2014, the U.S. saw its first ever soda tax in Berkeley, California. And those efforts were again expanded in Oakland, San Francisco, and Philadelphia, each with moderate injections of up to $1.6 million each. I think the county's been very, um, very straightforward lately by saying that this is about filling a budget hole. It doesn't really matter where, more, where money is pouring in from. The fact remains that consumers dislike this tax very much. He also funded a similar soda tax in Mexico, where researchers determined was mostly paid by low-income households, while wealthier individuals were dissuaded from buying the sugary drinks. An independent economic survey of the effect of the tax found that 30,000 Mexican stores which sold sodas were forced to close in just the first half of 2016 after the tax was passed. Bloomberg Philanthropies has avoided any questions about the tax, and they've paid for practically every study which claims its success. In all of these efforts, the focus for Michael Bloomberg has been on public health. And as mentioned by Mark Gunther, one of those organs through which this work is done is the World Health Organization's Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. It's relatively unknown. It's been in place since 2005. There are different parties who have signed the treaty on tobacco control. The United States is not included in that group but virtually every other country is. And in the raving opportunities that I've had to attend this convention, we see pretty much the same thing. 181 countries get together, have a UN-style talk fest, and they allow their favorite non-governmental organizations and anti-tobacco groups, like the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and the Framework Convention Alliance, observer status to intervene in the large debates and to use their platform to shame the delegates of any country who doesn't adopt neo-prohibitionist attitudes towards tobacco or nicotine. Though the conference claims to be about science and public health, it's anything but. Even though new vaping and e-cigarette technologies are the most popular stop-smoking aids in places like the United Kingdom, the United States, and Canada, still, the World Health Organization and its Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, FCTC, regards these claims as unfounded or inconclusive. Many of the top NGOs say people should refrain from from even discussing these benefits because they might convince people to use these products rather than smoke. The Framework Convention has completely revolutionized the the state of affairs in global tobacco control. It has has acted as a catalyst for massive uh, shifts of policy. Those measures that are proven to reduce tobacco use Uh, We're talking about the tax increases, protecting people from uh, exposure to tobacco smoke, strong health warnings. What allows such a prohibitionist organization to continue to exist is that, frankly, no one knows it does. And the bias runs throughout its rotten core. Many of the diplomats who are there seated as delegates or those who run the organization behind closed doors or media are not allowed in, delegates from around the world create law create restrictions, and try to make the argument that 
vaping nicotine devices and all nicotine alternatives such as pouches or snus, all of those are tobacco products and should be subject to the same restrictions, the same bans, and the same laws. There's no distinction. There's no nuance. There's only what us, the World Health Organization and our large treaty organization, says is the truth. And this organization is buoyed once more by the UN Special Ambassador on Non-Communicable Diseases, Michael Bloomberg, who apart from this treaty and this international affair, has also given millions, if not billions, to similar efforts to try to stop nicotine alternative devices from becoming legal and available for the smoking public. We've seen that happen in India, in the Philippines, where there have been millions of dollars funneled into the health agencies in exchange for specific bans and consumer product restrictions. But despite the millions or billions of dollars that flood into health agencies and nonprofit groups and foreign nations, some political leaders are standing up. Indian Prime Minister Modi cut off Bloomberg's purse strings in 2014, and there have been recent investigations into Bloomberg's donations to the FDA of the Philippines for much the same reason. Though there's a commitment to reduce tobacco use in middle and low-income countries, a significant part of Bloomberg's philanthropic fortune has ended up going to global efforts to clamp down on novel vaping products, which do not contain tobacco, and have been proven to be instrumental in getting smokers to quit. Across the globe, as the use of vaping devices and other nicotine alternatives has become more widespread, the number of daily smokers has continued to decrease, hitting low teen digits in many developed countries. It's an amazing achievement. But regardless of that, many of the charities funded by Bloomberg are still dedicated to the destruction of this product category. While any rational observer of most of Bloomberg's initiatives can testify to their importance and their positive impact on the world and its population, there are many aspects of this giving that have just been far too focused on controlling and attacking lifestyle freedoms in a way that only the fun police can do. And all of this permeates much beyond American shores. Bloomberg-affiliated charities have halted life-saving technologies from being legalized and regulated in developing countries like India, the Philippines, China, Brazil, Peru, Uruguay, Uganda, Nigeria, Kenya, and much more. So for the captain and commander of the fun police, Michael Bloomberg, the neo-prohibitionist-in-chief, where does it all end? In liberal democratic countries, there have been efforts through courts, through lawsuits, through new laws to try to stop the influence of Michael Bloomberg's public policy, whether it be through his own foundations or through his hand himself. But the judge found the law would be unfair because it would apply to restaurants, but not convenience stores, and would exclude other beverages that have significantly higher concentrations of sugar, like many lattes. So whether it be a quirk of law, of liberal democratic order, there will be efforts and there will be successes in halting much of the fun police activity of Michael Bloomberg. I've got to defend my children and you and everybody else and do what's right to save lives. Grasping the entire scope of billionaire Michael Bloomberg's donations to organizations and efforts that aim to limit, to restrict, to enforce neo-prohibitionism will be limitless. But as the evidence has revealed, no one individual has had more of an impact on policies that impact a consumer's right to choose the products they want than Michael Bloomberg. With an extensive network flushed with billions of dollars, 
governments and international bodies have been coaxed to propose tax hikes, flavor restrictions, and vaping bans to contort to the global health vision promulgated by Bloomberg. Perhaps some of these were appropriate or necessary, whether we're talking about the climate, whether we're talking about poverty, but considering the records of attacks on the freedom of choice for millions, if not billions of people, the toll is likely more negative than it has been positive. So who is the fun police? In our example here, the billionaire, Michael Bloomberg. He made it big, provided a product that millions of people have used around the world to improve their lives, choose better stock options, read the news. But he's used those profits to fund an international consortium of organizations dedicated to halting your personal freedom to choose. The fun police are not always as clear and sinister as Bloomberg. Oftentimes, they work in charities, NGOs, academic institutions. But their sole goal is one thing. Neo-prohibitionism. A new generation of those wanting to stop your drink, what you put in your mouth, what you put in your body. The Bloomberg experiment in many ways has been a success. But there are still many tools that we can use at our disposal to oppose the fun police. Campaigns, writing, videos, knowledge, activism, they all work in our favor as much as they work for Bloomberg as well. Are the fun police going to be the ones standing atop as the winners in all of this crusade? We're not sure, but we won't stop fighting for your right to choose no matter what. Fun Police is a Consumer Choice Center original podcast. Today's episode was written and researched by me, Yael Ososki, with additional help by Bill Vietz. For our guest Mark Gunther, Mark with a C, you can find his books and articles on his website, markgunther.com. For the rest of our research, including our academic paper, graphics, and the upcoming documentary on the Fun Police, head on over to consumerchoicecenter.org. And if you like our work, feel free to support us at consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate, or if you're using a podcasting 2.0 compliant app, boosting us with some Satoshis. Next week, host Bill Vietz will be back at the mic. Until then, stay clear of the Fun Police. (laughs) 